And let me just encourage all of you as we take our seats, those of you online right now as well and downstairs, let's take our Bibles and turn to the passage that Paul just read, Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. That's our passage for today as we're working through the book of Romans. Last week, if you remember, I said that there are two inescapable realities for us as human beings. Death and taxes. Last week, we talked about death and resurrection. Today, we talk about taxes. Happy April 15th, everybody. Today we talk about taxes. Today we talk about the government. Or as my granddaddy used to say, the government. (laughs) Today we talk about, would it be an understatement to say that the topic that we're addressing today is a touchy subject for all of us? That might be the greatest understatement in the history of preaching. This is a touchy subject for us as we talk about the government and government officials and how we are to submit, Paul says, to their authority. And let me, let me just start off by correcting a misconception right off the bat. It is sometimes said that government is a necessary evil. I think that's ungenerous. I think we can do better than that. Government is given by God as a good gift. God, government is a necessary good that is made up of sinful, sometimes evil human beings. I think that's a better way to say it. Government is a necessary good that is made up of sinful human beings. So is the church, by the way. And I'd rather have government than no government. Right? I'm glad we have a legislature. I'm glad we have a fire department and a police department. I'm glad we have governors and senators and a president. I'm glad we have 911. I was fiddling around with my phone this last week, and I don't know what happened. I touched the power button several times rapidly, and all of a sudden, my, my iPhone called 911. Have y'all had this happen to y'all before? And, and the lady, it's dialing 911. I'm like, what, what in the world's going on? And the, the lady says, 911, what's your emergency? And I'm just like, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to call. I don't something happened with my phone. I was just profusely apologetic. I'm so sorry. I wasted your time. There's no emergency. And the, the lady was so great. She's like, it's okay, sir. Do you have an iPhone? Yeah, if you touch your iPhone, you know, rapidly, the power button, it calls 911. Just be careful in the future. And so I said, okay, I'll be more careful in the future. But that was a great reminder for me as I did that. I'm glad we have 911. I'm glad we have emergency response. I'd rather have those things that come with government than to have the things that come with no government, anarchy, and lawlessness, and mob rule. I don't want that. And Paul tells us in this passage, Romans 13, he tells us unabashedly, Submit to your governing authorities. Obey your governmental leaders. And I know even as we start to work through this passage, you're going to be asking questions like, okay, Pastor, yeah, I, I get it, but aren't there exceptions to this? Aren't there exceptions to this? Pastor, aren't there exceptions to this? And you're kind of thinking through the exceptions. Yes, yes, let me tell you right now. There are exceptions. Paul's making some blanket General statements that Paul even talks about and shows us elsewhere are not absolute in every instance. We will eventually get to those exceptions today. We will. But can I just say that Paul, as he's writing this, he's saying some things that are intended to make you feel uncomfortable. They're intended to challenge you. And I want, before we get to the exceptions, I want you to feel the discomfort of this text. Because probably within that discomfort, there's some conviction that God wants to work in your life and some repentance that needs to take place. I know that's been true for me as I've studied this passage this last week. So let's work through this, Harvest Decatur. Write these down. I'm going to give you five expectations of Christians in relation to the government. Here's the first one. Submit to governing authorities. Submit 
to governing authorities. Paul says in verse one, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Let every person be subject. Submit. This is the Greek word here, hupatasso. Let's just say that together. Hupatasso. Good. Isn't that fun? Hupo means under, and tasso is a verb that means to arrange or to put in place. So you are arranging yourself under authority. You are willingly putting yourself under governing authority. That's the idea here. The governing authorities, by the way, that God has established. Hupatasso. And this, by the way, this is the same word that Paul uses elsewhere to tell Christians to submit to their spiritual leaders. First Corinthians 16, 16. This is the same word that Paul uses to tell wives to submit to the authority of their husbands. Ephesians 5, 24. It's the same word that Paul uses to tell Christian slaves to submit to their masters. It's the same word that Peter uses to tell younger men to submit to their elders. First Peter 5, verse 5. It's the same word that Luke uses of Jesus when Jesus voluntarily submitted himself to the authority of his sinful parents. Luke chapter 2, verse 51, Hupatasso. And if the God of the universe, Jesus Christ, could submit to his sinful parents, I don't think it's too much to ask for us to be submissive to our governing authorities. You see, God has ordered our world with authority and with hierarchy And order is good. Order is good. Marriages have a proper order and authority. Children submit to your parents. Wives submit to the husband. The husband is to lead. We all submit to Christ. Churches have established authority. The church submits to the elders. And we all submit to Jesus Christ who is the head of the church. That's good to have that order. And in a similar way, the government was established by God and citizens, especially Christian citizens, should willingly place themselves underneath the governing authorities that God has established. Willingly, not begrudgingly. Because we know that all those hierarchies, the family, the church, governing authorities, all of those are ordered by God and God is the head of all of those hierarchies. It's good to have order. That's why Paul says this. He says, be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority. Look at verse 1. This, this is so hard-hitting and convictional. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. When you are submitting to governing authorities, you're ultimately submitting to God. That's some serious stuff. You don't want to defy God's authority. Verse 2, therefore, here's the warning from Paul, whoever resists, the word used here for resist is antitasso. It's not hupotasso, but antitasso. You refuse to be under. Therefore, whoever resists, the authority resists, antitasso, what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. You break the law, you go to jail. You fail to pay your taxes, you get fined. You run a red light, you get a ticket. You murder someone, you get convicted of manslaughter, you do hard time. God has appointed governing authorities in our world to enforce these things, and it's good that God has done that. It is good. I don't want to live in Chaz. I don't want to live in Chop in Seattle. Isn't that self-evident that that's not a good thing to just go nuts and create anarchy? I think that's pretty self-evident now. I don't want to live there. No, thank you. Write this down as number two. Here's the second expectation of Christians in regards to government. First of all, we submit to governing authorities. Secondly, we obey the law. We obey the law. Paul says in verse three, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. That word for terror here, rulers are not a terror. Terror in Greek is the word phobos. We get our word phobia from this word, phobos, to fear. And, you know, what Paul's saying here is, are rulers supposed to induce fear for good conduct? No, they are not. Should we be afraid to do good? No, we should not be afraid to do good. We should be afraid to do bad because it's punished by the state underneath the authority of God. Paul asks this rhetorical question, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? That's not a good thing. 
then do what is good, says Paul, and you will receive his approval. Why are you, speaking of Fabas, why are you afraid when you drive by something at a fast speed and you see those sirens turned on and the police come after you? Why are you afraid? Because you broke the law. And if you didn't break the law, you wouldn't be afraid. Right? I don't know what you're talking about, Pastor Tony. Never. You know, on Lost Bridge Road, just a couple days ago, there was this that one of those speed radar signs that tells you your speed. And I was driving by there on the way to work, obviously. And, you know, I was like, wow, I'm 10 miles per hour over. It's just got that flashing thing at you, you know? And I was like, boy, that's, that's bad. I should not do that. I'm, I'm going to do better next time. But it, you, you know, and you say that, but, but it doesn't really hit you. You just kind of like, yeah, I'll try to do my best next time. Right. Well, a few days later, the sign wasn't there, but there was a, there was a police cruiser there instead and it, he was kind of hiding over at Ivy Hill Park, so you couldn't see him at first. And that, you know, the anxiety kicked in. The fabas. I'm afraid. Why am I afraid? I hit my brakes. If I was doing good, I wouldn't have any reason to fear, but I was speeding. And I was afraid. Right? You guys know what I'm talking about, right? You guys know what I'm talking about, don't you? No, Pastor Tony, Never. My mom likes to tell me that she's never gotten a speeding ticket in her entire life. She, she brags about this. And so I like to come back with, well, have you ever sped or broken the law? And then she's just silent. No comments. Paul says, for he, verse four, the person in authority, in that case, the police officer is God's servant for your good. Man, who talks like this? Your servant, the, the good of what? The good of your community, the good of the government. Government is good. By the way, that word servant here, for he, the, the person in authority is God's servant for your good. That word servant is the Greek word diakonos, which is the same word diakonos that we get the office of the deacon in the church. Paul writes about this later in 1 Timothy 3. The authority figure is God's deacon, is what Paul is saying here. He's God's deacon. She's God's deacon. The authorities over us are God's deacon. The president is God's deacon. The governor is God's deacon. The police officer is God's deacon. The city officials in Decatur are God's deacons. They are God's deacons over us for our good. I don't think Paul would ever approve ever of hashtag not my president. If Paul had a Twitter account, he would never affirm that hashtag not my Caesar. He wouldn't write that. For he is God's servant, diakonos of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. You know, what was it? Two weeks ago, we looked at that passage in Romans 12, where, where Paul tells us not to avenge, right? Don't leave, leave it to God's wrath. Leave, you know, don't, don't embrace vigilante justice and just take it on yourself. Instead, you leave it to God. To accomplish, and, and obviously there's, a, there's an eschatological reality to that. At the end of time, God will deal with that and put every wrong right. But, but this is saying that part of God's wrath, part of the way that God punishes is using the state to avenge and carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Wow. And that's just a few verses after Romans 12. Now this is, this is tough stuff here. I, I know. And I don't mind lingering on this a little bit. Paul doesn't want the church of Jesus Christ to be known for rebellion and insurrection. Paul doesn't want the church to unnecessarily be a thorn in the side of the powers that be. And the reason for that is because Christians are already offensive enough with what they believe. There's no reason to add to that offense. Something else. That's unnecessary. I'll just give you an example of that in terms of how we are offensive in what we believe. You know, in the first few centuries of the church, Christians refused to utter the phrase Kaiser Kurios. They wouldn't say it. Kaiser Kurios. Caesar is Lord. Why wouldn't they say that? Why wouldn't they affirm that? Because they believe that in Christos Kurios. They believe that Christ is the Lord. So they wouldn't say Caesar is Lord. 
And actually, Polycarp, one of the first Christian martyrs in the early church, he, he wouldn't say that. They put him to death, an old man, because he wouldn't say, Kaiser Kurihas. He had to defy the state. And there are going to be matters where the church, where we have to defy the state. We'll get into that a little bit later. But what Paul is emphasizing here is that obedience to the state, where we can, Christians need to adopt, adopt an attitude of submissiveness and compliance. Paul even tells us in 1 Timothy 2 to pray for our leaders. How's that going? He says, pray for kings and all who are in high position, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. This is good, says Paul. And it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Write this down as number three. Christians who submit to authorities, we should obey the law. We also need to guard our conscience. We need to guard our conscience. Paul says in verse five, therefore, one must be in subjection. There's that word again, hupotasso. You're voluntarily putting yourself under the governing authorities. Therefore, one must be in subjection to governing authorities. And, and here's, here's the justification for that. Here's the reason for that. Not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. In other words, don't just submit to your governing authorities because you're afraid of them. You're afraid of the sword. You're afraid of the, that they're going to punish you for disobeying. Do it for the sake of your conscience. You want to have a clear conscience before the Lord. You want to go to bed at night with a clear conscience, knowing that I've done my best to honor and obey God, to submit to the authorities over my life, to obey the word of God as I understand it, as God has delivered it to me. Look, I don't know about you guys, but I, I want a clear conscience. I feel like the older I get, the more I want, I want a clear conscience. Yes, it's exciting to sin. It is. You heard it here first. Pastor Tony said it. Yes, it's exciting to break the law. It's a rush to do evil and get away with it. I know about that. I've experienced that. But you know what's better than that? You know what's better than that? Holiness is better than that. Obedience to God is better than that. A clear conscience. Freedom from guilt is better than that. And I want a clear conscience. You know, Doug Moo, who wrote probably the best commentary on the book of Romans, best modern commentary Anyway, he said this about Romans 13. You can read this on the screen. He said, it is only a slight exaggeration to say that a history, the history of the interpretation of Romans 13, 1 through 7, is the history of attempts to avoid what seems to be its plain meaning. And I, I'll just tell you, that is that is sad. That people read this and, and their first thought is, well, how do we get out of this? Quick. And you know, I understand that. I understand that quote. I understand what's happened because you know what? I've done that. That's not the first time I've read Romans 13. is the first time I preached it and had to answer to God for preaching it. But I mean, I've read Romans 13 before and I said, oh, Paul can't really mean this. Well, yeah, well, what about this exception? Well, you know, you've got to understand the original context, you know, and I've tried to weasel out of this. I've tried to rebel against this. I can't help myself. I'm from Texas. We rebel against everything. It's in my blood. But, but you know what I want now? You know what I want now? I want a clear conscience. I want to go to bed at night and say, I've done my best. I want to err on the side of obeying the Lord. Versus maybe some other way to interpret it. And I think a lot of us are guilty of watering this passage down or defanging it so it doesn't have its convictional bite in our lives. And I, I'm afraid we do the same things with a passage like this that 
LGBTQ activists do with passages in the Bible that prohibit homosexuality. We just kind of, well, it doesn't really mean that. We can weasel out of this. We can do better than that. I want to guard my conscience. Now, one point of clarification. I do want to say this. Now, Tim Keller, as he teaches on verse 5, he tells us that this appeal to conscience that Paul gives us, it cuts both ways. It cuts two ways. It calls for obedience to the government when the government doesn't ask us to do something unbiblical or unjust. As long as it doesn't go against what God teaches, we should be obedient. But it also calls us to disobey the government whenever conscience dictates us to do so. In other words, we can't you know, engage in immoral behavior and just say, well, I was just following orders. I had to do it. I was just following orders. You know, like, like people in Germany when the Nazis were in control. I was just following orders. No, you need to obey your conscience in matters like that. And I think that's super, super helpful. Here's what Keller says on it. You can read this on the screen. He says, on the one hand, we will obey the state even when there are no civil consequence. Because our motivation is obedience to the God who established the state. On the other hand, we can never submit uncritically to what the state tells us to do. If it requires us to violate our conscience, we must disobey. That is so helpful. Understanding that. Don't mess with your conscience. Harvest a cater. Guard it as best you can. Write this down as number four. Here's another thing. Guard your conscience. Also pay your taxes. Pay your taxes. Paul says in verse six, for because of this, because of verses one through five, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. In Rome, they had taxes and revenue. They had different kinds of taxes, just like we do. And this statement here in verse 7, it kind of sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Render to Caesar the things that are... Where have I heard that before? Oh yeah, Jesus said that. Pay your taxes, says Jesus, says Paul. And for some of us, I know that's a hard pill to swallow. That would have been an even harder pill for the Jews and the Gentiles in Paul's day. Because some of those taxes were going to pay for the oppression of Jewish people and the oppression of the Christian church. Some of those taxes were going to pay for the aggrandizement of the oppressive Roman Empire. Sure, some of it went to pay for roads and bridges and infrastructure and law enforcement. Some of it also was wasteful government spending. And Paul says, pay your taxes. Am I, am I hitting a nerve here with what I'm talking about? You know, when I constructed my sermon calendar, I do it every summer, the year before. So I constructed this sermon calendar Last summer, and I I had no idea that Romans 13, when I would preach this passage, it would be the week of April 15th, 2021. I didn't know that. I guess the Holy Spirit knew that we needed a reminder to pay our taxes and to not cheat on them. You might say, "I, I I don't like paying taxes, Pastor Tony. I don't like paying taxes to the infernal revenue service. The tax rate's too high. Government spending is out of control. I agree. So let's do something about it. Let's vote bad government officials out of office. Let's vote for someone who will lower taxes and stop the out-of-control spending. Praise God we live in a democratic republic where we can do that. Paul's audience would know nothing of that. They never voted for their Caesar. But let me say, even in our democratic republic, the Republic of the United States of America, God is still sovereignly in control. And you can't get out of your taxes. You can't get out of obeying the government by saying, well, I didn't vote for that person, so not my president. Hashtag, not my president. You can't do that. By the way, there were several revolts in Rome 
at this time that had to do with excessive tax burdens. Most of it had to do with Nero, who was not a great Roman Empire emperor, and it's quite possible that some, even within the Roman church, were agitating for rebellion against Rome. Agitating, agitating. And it's possible that Paul wrote this to address whatever was going on in that church to say, stop the agitation. Stop the revolution. Stop the insurrectionist talk. And I heard John Piper say this last week as he was teaching on this topic that it's possible too that Paul wrote with the Roman government in mind knowing that they would peek over his shoulder, so to speak, to see what he said. And so Paul is very conscientious to show the Romans and the Roman church that he was not agitating for a revolution. He was not calling for insurrection. He wasn't calling for Christians to be revolutionary against the state. Again, Christianity is offensive enough with what we believe. We don't need to add to that offenses that are unnecessary. And I think that's really relevant in our day. Christianity is offensive enough in our defense of the unborn. Christianity is offensive enough in our opposition to LGBTQ issues. Christianity is offensive enough in our support of traditional family values, in our ultimate commitment to Christ and the gospel. We don't need to go starting unnecessary fights where they don't need to be. We don't need to agitate. We don't need to weasel out of paying our taxes. To the best of our ability, we should show to the government our willingness to obey governing authorities. And also, this is a tough one. Fifthly, this is something I struggle with. Honor your leaders. Pay to what is owed them, says Paul, verse 7. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. The church father, Ambrosi Astor, he suggested that one way the Christians, that we as Christians can testify to the power of the gospel is by this, by giving honor as best we can to governmental leaders. He writes this, giving honor to the powers that be in this world may have the effect that if they see the humility of Christ's servants, they may praise rather than curse the gospel's teaching. We are called as Christians to respect and honor our government officials, whether they be police officers, senators, congressmen, congresswomen, city council members, government officials, the governor, the president. And I think, as I look out on our country, I think both the left and the right are guilty of violating this command. In other words, I think the riots in Seattle that brought about CHOP, the same spirit that was in that is in the spirit of those people that ransacked the Capitol building on January 6th. It's a spirit of rebellion. It's disobedience to what God has commanded us right here. And Christians should not advocate or support either of those. Can we protest? Yes, it is our constitutional right, praise God. That right didn't exist in the first century world, by the way, for Roman Christians. We can protest. We can dissent. We can speak out. We have freedom of speech. Praise God. We can make a public argument. And we can vote. We can vote. Praise God for that. And we should do all of those things, but we can't violate Romans 13. We can't trample over this. And we can't disrespect our public officials. Honor, give honor to your leaders, says Paul. Okay, Pastor Tony. But do we always have to obey what the government tells us to do? Are there times, Pastor Tony, when we can and should engage in civil disobedience? Short answer, yes. And the Bible makes allowances for this. 
So let me go through these quickly. Four additional expectations of us. Remember the hierarchy, okay? Family, government, the church. Who's ultimately in charge of all of those institutions? God is. God is. So, first additional expectation, obey God before men. The classic text regarding this is Acts 5.29. The religious leaders, if you remember, they tell Peter to stop evangelizing. Peter and John, stop telling people about Jesus. Stop teaching in Christ's name. Peter says, thank you very much, but we must obey God rather than men. And Peter's life was on the line when he said that. They just crucified Jesus. We must obey God rather than men. I love it. And I love the fact that, you know, Peter, if you read that, read through that. Read through Acts 4 and read through Acts 5 if you're thinking about civil disobedience. What's great is that Peter, Peter is not disrespectful. He's not dismissive of the authority of these leaders. He's not. He just tells them, I've, I've got a higher authority that I need to submit to. You guys do what you need to do. I need to do what I need to do before the Lord. And that logic is in place in all of the authority structures that God has built into our world. So, ladies, if your husband tells you to sin, you tell him, I must obey God rather than men. If your employer tells you to cook the books, you say, I must obey God rather than men. If your employer asks you to perform an abortion or to perform a sex change operation, or if they come to me and say, you must perform same-sex weddings, I will say, I must obey God rather than men. I have to. And God forbid, if your elders ask you to sin or ask you to go against your conscience, like I said, God forbid that that would ever happen. But if it does, you say, I must obey God rather than men. The late British theologian and pastor, John Stott, he states this so plainly when he says, whenever laws are enacted which contradict God's law, civil disobedience becomes a Christian duty. It's a duty. And by the way, when I, civil disobedience, we need to be careful with that term because that's not a trump card you pull out every five minutes. Here we go. You know, if you're going to go nuclear on one of God's institutions, whether that be the family or the church or the government, you better have God's backing in that. There's no reason to just go nuclear over some futile, simple matter. You better make sure you're in the right in those instances and that you have God's backing and you're not just using that as an excuse to blow up something you don't like. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had good reasons for doing what they did. They refused to obey Nebuchadnezzar and bow the knee to his statue. They were even willing to be thrown into the fiery furnace for that. That's how deep their conviction was. The Hebrew midwives lied to the Egyptian authorities instead of killing Hebrew babies. What did they say? I'm trying to remember. You know, Hebrew women are so strong. They give birth so fast. We can't get there. What? And the, and the Egyptians bought that. I just, what? And you know what the Bible says? They were justified in that. God said that was right that they did that. And God blessed them. Because there was a lesser of two evils going on there. When the Nazi Gestapo came to Corrie Ten Boone's house and started interrogating her family, these officials, these, the, the Nazi Gestapo, started to rebuke Corrie Ten Boone's father with the Bible. And they said, don't you know what the Bible says? You're supposed to submit to our authorities. You're here hiding Jews in your house. You're doing wrong. Was Corey Tim Boone and her family wrong? No, they were not. No, they were not. In that case, it was totally a lesser of two evils. As those governing authorities were looking to kill and execute innocent people. In fact, when Martin Niemöller, a German pastor, he was thrown into prison during World War II because he kept preaching against the Nazi policies and he kept preaching the gospel even though people told him not to. So they threw him into prison. And a prison chaplain came to visit him in prison and the chaplain said, what brings you here, brother? 
why are you in prison? And Niemöller told that chaplain, why are you not in here? You should be in here too. He was hot. This is right that I'm here, he said to this other chaplain. Are there times that Christians can and should engage in civil disobedience? Yes, absolutely. But you better be careful. You're not trampling lightly on Romans 13. Here's a second additional expectation. Number two, don't bow the knee to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. Don't bow the knee to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel chapter 3. And here's the the greatest emperor in the world at that time, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who just conquered nation after nation after nation after nation. And then he builds this dumb statue after Daniel interprets his dream. And he makes everybody in his kingdom bow down to it. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't do it. They refuse to do it. And they get called out. They get outed. And they stand before this great man as he's angry. And they say the most brave thing imaginable. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Woo! If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, in other words, if we die a death in that fiery furnace, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up you got to love that. In other words, you, you do what you need to do, king. We're going to do what we're going to do. We're going to obey God rather than men in this instance. And similarly, I would say to you, Harvest Decatur, don't, don't bow the knee to King Nebuchadnezzar's statue. In other words, God is your God. Jesus is your Lord. You don't offer worship to anyone else ever, ever. You, you refuse to say Kaiser Kurios or whoever Kurios other than Christos Kurios. Jesus is Lord. And I'll be honest with you, one of the things that I struggle with happens every four years. We kind of prop some new person up as the Messiah that's going to save our country. Here he is. Here she is. They're going to save us. And look, can I be straight with you? I don't want the elephant to save me. I don't want the donkey to save me. I want the Lamb of God to save me. He's my Messiah. That's who I trust in. And I don't like Messiah talk about political leaders. Come on. They're human. That's all too obvious to all of us, isn't it? And if your governmental leaders institute policies that bring you into conflict with your religious obligations to the God of the universe, you have a duty to disregard that policy. Praise God in this country, we have a constitutional provision that protects religious liberty and allows us to obey our deeply held religious convictions. I don't know how long that's going to last, but praise God that that's in our Constitution. No matter what, we don't, we don't bow the knee to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. Here's a third expectation, additional expectation. We need to protect the reputation of the church. Paul says in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible, as far as it, don't go looking for a fight, Christian. We're not warmongers. We're not looking to be attacked, looking for a reason to go on the offensive. As much as, much as you can, live a Quiet and peaceful life. Paul even says to pray for that. Quiet and peaceful life. Godly and dignified in every way. Paul tells elders in 1 Timothy 3, listen up elders, that we should have, we should be well thought of by outsiders, people outside of the church. 1 Timothy 3, 7. Paul tells elders that we should be above reproach, that we should be sober-minded, that we should be self-controlled, that that we should not be violent but gentle, but that, that we should not be quarrelsome, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 3. We need to model that, elders, for our church. And that shouldn't just be true of the elders. That should trickle down to every person in the church. Peter tells us in 1 Peter. I can read this on the screen. 
He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. By the way, the emperor that ruled when Peter wrote that was Emperor Nero. And Nero was responsible for some of the greatest evils ever perpetrated against Christians. Nero was an incredibly wicked person and some, some would argue a total psycho. And, and I, could tell you some, I could tell you some stuff about the Roman emperors that would terrify, not just Nero, Claudius, Caligula, others. And in fact, Nero, the person who was in charge when Peter wrote that, honor the emperor, Nero was the person that was responsible for putting Peter to death. And Paul, by the way. And if Peter can tell people to honor the emperor in his day, how much more should we honor our government leaders in our democratic republic in our day. And here's a final expectation. Number four, pray for the government. Pray. Pastoral confession time. I wish I spent half as much time praying for our government leaders as I spend reading Babylon Bee articles making fun of our governmental leaders. I want to change that. I want to do better with that. We can do better. And maybe it's a good time to recite 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3. First of all, then I urge you, the supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Is everybody sufficiently convicted this morning? Are you now? I am. I've got some work to do. In my life, as it relates to first to Romans thirteen, here's how I want to close. I want to close with something that Jesus said to us. Okay, that's a good place to close a message, right? With something that Jesus said. This is great moment in the Gospels when Jewish leaders were trying to trap Jesus, and they were trying to get him to say something that would get him self into trouble. So they asked him, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Should we pay our taxes? And they think this trap is foolproof, you know, because if Jesus says, no, you shouldn't pay your taxes, then, you know, the Romans will be inflamed and come and kill Jesus. But if he says, yes, you should pay your taxes, then maybe some of Jesus' followers will get angry and they'll kill Jesus. It's a foolproof trap. We got Jesus right where we got him cornered. And Jesus, knowing that these questioners are up to no good, he says, give me a coin. So they bring him this denarius. And he asks them a question, which Jesus, have you noticed how Jesus does that? People ask him a question. He's like, well, let me ask you a question. So they bring him this denarius and, and Jesus says, whose insignia is on this coin? Whose image is there? They say, well, obvious, it's Caesar. There's his image right there. It's on the coin. Jesus says, okay. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. 
I heard J.D. Greer say that this, this right here was the original Jesus juke in the Bible. He just juked them. And he gave them something that they didn't even know what to do with. They just marveled at what he said, and they took off. They left him alone. They didn't want to get embarrassed by him again. They came back later. Should I pay my taxes, Pastor Tony? Yes, Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. How simple is that? But let's think about what else Jesus said for a moment. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to whom? And to God the things that are God's, said Jesus, right? So what belongs to Caesar? The taxes. His insignia is on the very money that they use. That's obvious. Pay your taxes. But think about the other side of that statement. Render to God the things that are God's. What belongs to God? You belong to God. His insignia is emblazoned on your soul. You are made in God's image. That denarius has Caesar's image on it. You have God's image on you. You belong to God. All right, well, I give my taxes to Caesar. Yes, you pay your taxes. What do you give to God? You give yourself to God. You belong to him. Render to God the things that are God's. Worship belongs to God alone. Don't bow the knee for anybody except God Almighty. Wholehearted, unqualified obedience belongs to God alone. Your life and your eternity belongs to God. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render to God the things that are God's. Bow with me. Worship team's coming up to close us in song. Please don't be distracted by that. Hear me right now. Everybody in this room, everybody online. Do you belong to God for eternity? Answer that question. Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Believing in his death, believing in his resurrection. Those who belong to him will enter into eternity forever where Jesus will govern. And there will never again be sin. There will never again be a need for justice. There will never be again be a need for punishment. For those who belong to him, if you don't belong to him, you will be eternally separated from God in eternity, eternally experiencing the punishment of those who don't have faith in Christ. Do you belong to God? The Bible says, If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart, God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. Put your faith in him. Believe. Lord, we love you in this church. We want to obey you. God, we want a clear conscience. There's some difficult issues going on right now in our world. There's stuff that we as elders have dealt with for over a year now. Knowing how to best submit to our governing authorities and at the same time, Lord, 
putting God above men. It's been hard. And God, we need your help, I pray. Give us a sensitivity to what you've called us to do. Help us to have a clear conscience, Lord. That is such a precious thing. And Lord, we do pray for our leaders. We pray for our leaders in Decatur. Help us to honor them. We do pray for our governor and our state senators and our state legislators. And we ask you, Lord, that they would enact policies that would benefit the kingdom of God and would not be a threat to us as Christians. Lord, we pray for our federal leaders. We pray for our president. We pray for senators and congressmen and congresswomen that they would legislate with the fear of the Lord. That they would pass laws that would please God and that are sensitive to your ways. And God, ultimately, we submit to you. Christos Kurios. Jesus is Lord. Jesus alone is Lord. We love you. We worship you. We submit to you. We submit to your word. Help us to feel the cleanness of conscience that comes with obedience to you. I pray.